Hi, uh, Mr. Obehi. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. And the first thing I'm going to say in your introduction, you said Aliu is associate professor at Tennessee State University. I'm not at Tennessee State University. I'm at Middle Tennessee State University. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, Thank you, you have another university. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi A14. And I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. That is called Tennessee State University. I'm not there, but I'm at Middle Tennessee State University that is located in Murfreesboro, in the city of Murfreesboro, something like 25 minutes south of Nashville in the state of Tennessee. Now, you ask me to talk about why, uh, to talk about myself. I myself, I'm from Senegal, located in West Africa. Uh, and uh, I teach here in the United States. It's a long procedure, but first, uh, what, why I decided to do history. The reason is growing up in Senegal, as somebody who, yes, was born after the independence, but I used to hear my older brothers and my old sisters talking about the kind of like history lessons they were getting in Senegal under the French colonization. One of the main thing they were taught was uh, Senegalese people were descendant of the French Gaul people, meaning the people in Senegal were taught that their origin and their ancestors are, are white people who are part of the ancient French Gaul uh, political system. But also over time growing up with uh, my parents and my family being a Muslim family, I was told also the origin of my family was from Middle East as something that I'm a Fulani or hard polar, we call it, Aliuli. And my parents, my dad has always made me believe that the origin of our family is Middle East, specifically Saudi Arabia. You see, and over time, going my education courses in Senegal, I come across the teaching of Professor Sheikh Antejok, who is known as one of the most prominent African scholars who talk about Africa and Africanity and the origin of Egyptian civilization to be black, but also the origin of the humanization also coming out of Africa, then it's kind of like growing up, I have these three uh, version or theories about what is or what could be my origin. You see, that's where automatically my interest in this history start growing up. And I say, it might be good to go and teach and find out really where, what is my origin and where I come from. That's how I became more and more interested in history. And that's also how the whole thing started. Now, talking about why the goal to teach history in the United States and not in Africa and all that, I think you it's easily understandable. Uh, the young African uh, man who was part of the world have that is completely and strongly influenced by the United States 
I wanted to come to the United States. And at the same time, the goal was to teach his African history in American universities to participate in breaking down these misconceptions Americans or Westerners might have about Africa. You see, that's what lead to all these things coming together. Me being here today, uh, teaching African history in American university. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Aliu. Uh, well, I'm not going to start uh, with the controversy, uh, but I will usually, um, this question I usually reserve it for later, but I'm going to just put it to you like this, because since we are here, like I told you before, we we tune the system on, that this is just a conversation, and this is what we do here. We just uh, converse, we talk, we talk to one another as if we're in a coffee bar. Um, you see, I've interviewed a lot of uh, African-Americans and also uh Africans that have gone to America in the recent time. And one of the questions I usually ask them uh, in relation to African history is why is it that uh, they don't hear a lot about the gallant history of Africa in America? And of course, it is like uh, in many other places, these things are not taught in school as if they were forbidden. Of course, what you alluded to in your story is also about the same, no? That when you were growing up, you were told that uh, you were actually originated from France, uh, or you were originated from France. They say you were originated, you originated from from the Middle East, which would mean that they already put you in a confusion there. But what I want to what I want to ask you actually right now is how much African history is actually being taught in the United States? I want to start from there. Okay, uh, that's a very good question. Now, first. Talking about the origin, people been told in ancient time their origin was in France for them, in the French colonies. It was part of the whole quote unquote French civilizing mission, right? Kind of like trying to brainwash Africans, but also my parents saying like origin being Middle East, it's part of like, as we are Muslims and they somehow was able uh, in the past, they were taught that the origin of the family was in Middle East because that's kind of like the starting point of the whole Islamic religion and all this kind of stuff, you know? Now, uh, the, your question, uh, if you can repeat your question, I'm kind of like losing it. I'm sorry here. No, no, it's okay. No, the question was, how much uh, uh, African history is being taught in the United States? Yes. Now, the question, how much African history has been taught in the United States? Now, I can say we are at a point of time where most Afri uh, American universities are trying to have at least one Africanist historian, somebody who can teach right, uh, African history. You see, and if you look, the, the whole thing started in the 1950s. If you look before the 1950s, the way people think about Africa in the Western world, more mostly like, oh, Africa do not have history. Or in most of many places, it was like these colonial officers who went to Africa and they start writing about Africans and what they think to be Africans. That was really very far from the reality. You see, it's just in the 1950s, now you start seeing a new generation of Western scholars who were saying, uh, Africa, if they want to, teach African history in the Western world, it must be 
an African history that is centered around Africans and Africa, but not teaching Africa through the eyes of colonizers. You see, that's how the whole process started in places like in England. And after that, the, most of those ones moved to the United States. That's why if you look historically by the 1970s, you have some uni American universities such as UCLA or, uh, or uh, Ann Harbor in, uh, uh, in Illinois, right? Or Madison in Wisconsin, who start dedicating the teaching of African history. You see, that's how it started. It started very, very slow, but you can say since the ninth, after 2000, 1990s to 2000, now I'm gonna say every single, most of American universities are trying, if they don't have a full department of African history, at least they are trying to have somebody who can teach these African history courses. You see, that's kind of like where we are and more and more people are becoming interested uh, to teaching African history and more and more American universities are becoming interested in teaching uh, African history. Now, before that, you talk about how uh, people view, people's view of Africa is so negative or Africans don't wanna talk about uh, Africa when they are in the United States. The thing, it go back to colonization and uh, Atlantic slave trade. You see, because most of the Western people, where they get their uh, information about Africa, it's about through the news. You see, and most of the time here, when you ask people what they know about Africa or Africans, it's like wildlife, safari, disease, and all that. Because the Western media have been portraying Africa as one, as one country. When they talk about other countries, they have a tendency to pinpoint a specific geographical location. For example, when they are talking about a war in Europe, they will pinpoint the specific place where the war is happening in Europe. For example, they might say in Bosnia during the ancient time, a uh, couple of years back, or they might talk about, uh, how you say it, Ukraine, or they might talk about a specific places, right? When they talk about Africa, war happening in Africa, they have a tendency to just make a generalization Africa to the point where in the mind of most of uh, Western youth, Africa is a country, not a continent, you see. And then from there also where these media pick up those ideas, they pick up those ideas through these old views about Europeans views, views about Africa for Atlantic slave purpose, you know, because Europeans wanted to exploit Africans. And if you wanna exploit a human being, Right, you have to find a way to kind of like take out the human aspect of that person in order for you to feel morally good in what you're gonna be doing. You see, that's where the whole idea about Africans being inferior, Africans not being as human being as Europeans were developed. And after that, the colonization come and continue play to play that game with the whole notion of, oh, we are going to Africa to civilize them. Why civilize them? You civilize somebody who might, who is uncivilized, then automatically they portray Africa as a place that is uncivilized and they wanna go to bring civilization there. And through that, they continue to perpetrate that ideology. And the major take, acts, uh, take part of that to portray Africans as the others. You see, because wanting to 
use them as slaves, wanting to exploit them, right? And wanting to put the process of ex exploitation to not being viewed as exploitation, but as a good thing doing for Africans, you see? Then they have to present Africans in the other way. And the major pick up on that. And that's why you have all this happening until now. But that's why what you see happening now is uh, with this whole idea of teaching African history through the perspectives of Africans and the African continent itself. And at the same time, you have more and more people organizing these education abroad programs, taking American students or Western students to Africa to make them see their, themselves what is Africa and who are the Africans. I think that's the way to go to try to break this kind of like misconceptions about Africa and all this kind of stuff. And I can say uh, most of the Africanist scholars who are here in the United States, and most importantly, African Africanist scholars who are in the United States are playing a major role in trying to make that shift. You see, yeah. All right, that is uh, really very important because actually I was just preparing a question to ask you there relating uh, to this uh, uh, idea of rewriting uh, the history because you need to be rewritten on. Uh, because uh, we must understand that there is a game that is being played here. You know? When the Europeans uh, prepared that they wanted to come to Africa to, um, to educate, they, let's put it that way, because first the Europeans came to Africa to get education. And now they say Africa didn't have any education, so we are going there to educate them. Uh, okay, now let's put it this way. Somebody opened his eyes and said that the Senegalese are... Uh, a descendant of the <laughs> of the French people, no? And what kind of excuse did he use to justify the differences? I don't understand that. I don't know. Maybe somebody asked the question like, okay, but uh, you are French. You look like this. You look like this. But me, I'm Senegalese. I did question like this don't come up. Like, why am I different from you? How did they justify that? Or is it simply to say, ah, God have cost you. God have cost you. That is why you are like this. Or I, I don't get that particular part. Like, if you say that I was a Nigerian, then I become a Senegalese, it's, it's very easy to, to even argue, you know? But to say that I was once an English, and now I am um, and, um, I'm in Nigeria, that is not very simple to explain. How did they manage to sell that to us, uh, to sell it to the mind of the people? And there were no contests. Now, what you have to understand in colonization is when Europeans come to colonize, most Africans never interact with the white men, right? And when Europeans also come to colonize, you have some Africans who will try to take advantage of the situation for their own gain. You see, that's kind of like where the difference is. It's not about like people looking at it just like, oh, these people are coming to try to change us. Yes, you have a lot of Africans who resisted, right? These tentatives to change or to quote unquote civilize these Africans, you see. But also you have very few Africans who take advantage of those situations in order to get like some social benefit out of it or to get some kind of like, uh, how you say, economic benefit out of it. Now think about it, for example. You come to a place where, based on their views, right, 
some people were exploited by other peoples who are who were part of their own societies. Now you have somebody coming and proposing them. Maybe I can buy you your freedom if you were kind of like a slave who has happened to be enslaved by some other people from your own community, right? Somebody coming and saying like, okay, I'm gonna buy you your freedom and you will work for me. And work for me from the Europeans mean you became part of, you became a kind of like a colonizer uh, assistant, right? Or participate in the colonial army or participate in the colonial police. You see, many of them don't look at it as I'm going against my own people. What they look at it, the way they look at it is like at a personal level, what they might be gaining from it. You see, then it's kind of like, it's more complicated than we have a tendency to portray. And if we have to think also, it's not all Africans who are living during these colonial periods who have to encounter the colonial officers. You see, yes, they were forced to pay tax and all that, but it's kind of like people were making decisions based on their individual and personal interests at that time. That's why some accepted to collaborate, right? But also you have a lot of ones who rejected all that and fight against the colonial system. Now, in the case of Senegal, if you look, it was not the whole Senegal who collaborated with the Europeans. You see, for them, yes, you can see based on the colonization process, how it happened. You can say places like the Saint-Louis, the four communes, Saint-Louis, Dakar, Rufisque, and Gore. They were, these places were the places where the colonization is starting point. And at the same time, in these places, that's where you have the division between who could be granted French citizenship and who will not be granted French citizenship and all that. Then when we talk about even like people working with the colonial system, it was a very limited number of people who decided to join for social interests or for economic interests to side with the colonial system. You see, that's kind of like what you see. And mostly the decision was made based on individual interest, not uh, collective interest. All right, thank you very much. If I, those issues need a lot of time to, to elaborate on, and of exactly, course, yeah. we, we, don't, we don't have that type of time here today. So we are going to go straight to, to the conversation that we have on Grant today, which is about the Guinea-Bissau. And now, mm -hmm. uh, can you give us a background of this country, Guinea-Bissau? So from there, we can enter into the conflict that we had there, and therefore the contribution of women in that struggle, please. Okay, to give a kind of like background of Guinea-Bissau, if you know geographically, Guinea-Bissau is located in West, West Africa. And the Guinea-Bissau today is surrounded by the country of Senegal in the Northern part, right? And you have the country of Guinea in the South East, right? Going all the way toward the Southwest of the Atlantic uh, uh, Ocean. Then, and it's a little country, well, okay, if I say little, it's, I'm talking about in terms of geographical space, right? It's not a big country to be, can be compared like Nigeria or Senegal, uh, but, uh, and it has up to around like 5 million people living there. Now, Guinea-Bissau, if you look, it was a former Portuguese colony. I'm not gonna try to go very deep in the ancient time, but at least it was a Portuguese colony that uh, after uh, 19, in, 
1961 started its national liberation struggle, right? And from that national liberation struggle, Guinea-Bissau will become independent, uh, will become independent September 10, 1974. Now, what you have to understand in the history of Guinea-Bissau uh, or what makes the history of Guinea-Bissau to be a little bit particular, yes, it was colonized by Portugal, but the Portuguese during their colonization of Guinea-Bissau, they preferred to go bring a lot of people from Cabo Verde Island, right? To become kind of like the uh, administration workers, right? Or to work for the colonial system in Guinea-Bissau instead of Portugal building schools and hospitals and all that to kind of like train the local people, right? Uh, for them to become like administration workers and so and so, Portugal preferred morally to go bring people from Guinea, uh, from Cabo Verde Island, right? That was one of the earliest Portuguese colonies in Africa. And those uh, Cabo Verdeans, when they moved to Guinea-Bissau, they became, uh, how you say it, uh, admin colonial administration uh, workers. And that's what make the history of Guinea-Bissau to be a little bit more interesting because what you will see then having a large group of people who are Cabo Verdean by origin or sons and daughters of people from Cabo Verde and having the local Bissau Guineans people there. Now it make it like a little bit more difficult because what you see happening there like the Cabo Verdeans will be granted Portuguese citizenship while the people from Guinea Bissau will never will be considered to be subject, never granted Portuguese citizenship. What that means then also in terms of even like civil rights, the one who are granted Portuguese citizenship, they have the right to, uh, to organize themselves as groups for social gatherings or for political gatherings and so and so. While the one who are considered indigenous, meaning the local Bissau Guineans, they don't have those rights. You see, that's why if you look most of the major uh, people who fought for Guinea-Bissau independence or for people's right in Guinea-Bissau prior to Guinea-Bissau becoming independent, most of them were from Cabo Verdean background or for, were born from parents with Cabo Verdean background. Somebody like uh, Amical Cabral, the most well-known nationalist leader in Africa, and from Guinea-Bissau, he was born in Bafata in the city of Guinea-Bissau, but his parents were, uh, his father and his father and his mother both were from the Cabo Verde. Uh, his father exactly was from Cabo Verde, who came to happen to come to Guinea-Bissau for administration work. And later on by 1956, him with somebody others, right, such Aristides Pereira, who became later on the first president of Cabo Verde Island, they built together the party for African independence, the PAI, PAI that later on became known as the PAI-JSA party for African independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde Island. You see, it's kind of like, that's what make the nationalist movements in Guinea-Bissau. You will see some of them were bi-nationalists because they were fighting not only for the independence of Guinea-Bissau, but they will be also fighting for the independence of Cabo Verde Island, you see. And most of these leaders that happened to run the nationalist organizations in Guinea-Bissau prior to the uh, 
uh, uh, independents who were to start, most of them were kind of like Cabo Verdean background. And uh, that's what happened there. In a kind of like very quick way, that's kind of like what I can give you as background of Guinea-Bissau. But if the time allowed us, I will be able to go deep in that, right, to explain all this but, historical aspect before we get to the liberation war period. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, now, when you were explaining, you made mention of um, of a strategy that the Portuguese adopted, which is uh, they were giving uh, preferential treatment to some people, uh, while the others were not giving, or they were giving uh, citizenship to the Capo Verdean who, who were in the territory, whether they were not giving the same to the Guinea-Bissau uh, people. Uh, why? What kind of strategy was that? Like, why were they doing it? What did they wanted to do by by that um, preferential treatment? Now, what you need to say first is like you know the colonizers they always have a tendency to come and use a small group of people as uh, from local uh, environment to try to control all the rest of the other groups. Now, what is important here is <clears throat> the case of Cabo Verdeans. It's kind of like uh, the Portuguese by late 17th century already when they were controlling several of the islands, island of Madeira, Cabo Verde Island, and going all the way south to Sao Tome and Principe. You see, uh, what they, they used those territories, those islands at first as places where they set up their plantations. Yeah, at first it was like rice plantations, later on it's gonna be like sugar plantations. And what they did was uh, to bring people in those areas prior to 17th century, prior to 18th century, what they did was prisoners, Portuguese prisoners in, in, uh, in Portugal, right, was offered the option to be removed in those islands and let be free, right? In, or to be imprisoned in Portugal. You see, it's kind of like the same thing that happened later on in places like uh, Australia, where British people were given some kind of like insensitives to go to immigrate to Australia. You see, then automatically when these uh, Portuguese people, settlers come to these islands, what they did was also, they still a lot of African women along West African coast. And when those ones come in, but also uh, African women as slaves also were, bringing, were brought in in those islands and African slaves. Then automatically this kind of like interaction between white Portuguese male and African women lead to the development of all this kind of like uh, mulatto community. You see, that was granted Portuguese citizenship and all that. Then it was, it became a kind of like intermediary class between the white Portuguese and the black Africans. And those ones will become, will play a key role in the colonization of most of the islands along the West African coast. But at the same time, when Guinea-Bissau, uh, when Portugal became more and more interested in Guinea-Bissau, then it became like, and knowing that Portugal was never interested in developing its colonies. Portugal was never interested in building schools or hospitals or anything in their colonies, they were more interested in exploiting the colonies than automatically instead of having to build the schools and all these infrastructures that might be needed in uh, the Portuguese colonies, why not we go bring these ones who are already half, who are Portuguese, but also 
quote unquote half white somewhere, right? And bring them, they become the intermediary class. You see, that's how this whole thing happening. It was more like for viewing these mulattoes to be half and half, right? But at the same time, a way for Portugal to avoid having to pay all the infrastructures that might be needed in order to help make Guinea-Bissau be up in play uh, as uh, be up to the point where they, the local people could be used in the colonial, uh, colonial administration systems. That was Absolutely. the reason why they prefer to use the Cape Verdeans. Okay, that is very important. Now, before I ask you a question relating to uh, the participation of the women in the stronghold, because now uh, the conflict has not started, no? Uh, we are building up towards it. Um, so you make mention of the use of the mulatto uh, be uh, instrumental in the colonization of the territory, which means that somebody from the onset has see opportunity that they want to exploit. Uh, so uh, the children, they become instrument in their hands and they use it. So uh, when you say that, what do you actually mean? Which role specifically do, do those um, uh, mulatto, those missed uh, people, uh, Mister of Africa and Mister of European, are uh, played in the colonization. Okay, now think about it. In the case of Guinea-Bissau, when we say that people who had like Cabo Verdean background were granted uh, Portuguese citizenship, what that means is like they have the full rights as any Portuguese citizen, meaning they have the right to have to have a fair trial. But the ones who the people of Guinea-Bissau who were viewed as subject, what that means is the police officer, the Portuguese police officer can decide about their future. The police officer can make them work for do forced labor, force them to work for the colonial administration without being paid fairly. You see, it's kind of like that's, and the one who were granted citizenship, they were allowed to assemble the way they want, while the one who were not granted citizenship were not allowed to talk about politics or to gather together. That's kind of like this whole impact between who was granted citizenship and who was not granted citizenship and how that translates. That's why what you will see from the 1936 period, when you have Bissau Guineans, right, who start organizing themselves into social organizations, even though those social organizations were also having some political, some very subtle political activities going on, right? The other ones who were uh, locals were not allowed to participate in those activities. And if they were caught, they will be put in jail directly. That's why if you look all the early political parties in Guinea, what later on will become political parties in Guinea-Bissau, they were all run by people who were uh, Bissau Guineans, because born in Guinea-Bissau, but their parents were Cabo Verdeans, meaning they were Cabo Verdean citizens. You see, the best example I can give you is like you have somebody named Henry Lebri, you have Amical Cabral. Amical Cabral, his father was from uh, Cabo Verde, but he was born in Guinea-Bissau. You see, then that's the ones who were allowed to do politics or talk at least a little bit about politics. While the other ones who were born and raised in Guinea-Bissau from Guinea-Bissau and parents, they were not allowed to participate in their activities. And the risk was to go for them to be, to be put in jail or to be beaten. And you know how the colonial system is. The colonial system has always used violence 
as a way to intimidate other ones, as a way to force other ones to not do what they don't want them to do. You see, that's kind of like, and at the same time, the colonial system were able to use the local people in forced labor, for forced labor, make them work for the colonial farm, make them work in building roads, bridges, or whatever, right, without them being paid. You see, and you don't have a choice in, you don't have the choice in raising your voice, should you do that or no, you don't have those opportunities. Then that's kind of like what you see happening in Guinea-Bissau throughout all those period of time. That's why if you look all the early political parties in Guinea-Bissau, the people who built them by the 1950s, right, will be people, yes, who got something to do with Cabo Verde Island. Express, uh, now you might have very few Bissau Guineans who decide to do that or who participate in doing that, but most of the time they have to do it clandestinely or they have to do it from Senegal or from uh, Guinea Conakry. You see, that's kind of like what happened. And even uh, Cabral and his followers, when they were building the PAE at first, that later on became PAE, just say, they did it in a very clandestine way. And when they were doing it, they were a group, some social scientists argue they were a group of between six and 15, but at least when they built it in 1956, all the way to 1959, they refused to have female members. Why? In Based on what one of their fem early female members, Car Carmen Prera told me, was they believe they have to keep it secret because even though they were uh, uh, por Portuguese, they have a Portuguese citizenship, but they were not allowed to run political parties and especially to talk about independence. Then when they built the political party, they, it was very secret and very limited group of people were part of the political party. And now what they were trying to do is to try to organize some of the upper class, right? Meaning Cabo Verdeans, because the upper class, when we talk upper class workers, right? In order for them, especially the one who were working in the port, right? Uh, disembarking the bo boats and all this kind of stuff to organize them for them to fight for better pay, right? And a better working conditions. That's what will lead to a kind of like a strike, dock workers strike in 1959 through September and that uh, dock workers will ended up having a lot of dock workers, 50 dock workers being killed by the colonial police. You see, and from there also the PIJC and Amical Cabral, all that were being chased by the Portuguese police and that will force them to get out of Guinea-Bissau and to move to Conakry, Guinea-Conakry, because now we're talking about 1959, Guinea-Conakry is independent, 1958, right? And you have Sekuture who was considered to be one of the major Pan-Africanists. They moved there now to start to organize themselves as to fight. And that's through that period also, the PIJC and Amical Cabral realized they would never be able to get the independence through the Pacific means. That's when they decide to organize the armed struggle. Now then them moving out of uh, Bissau and Guinea, uh, Guinea Portuguese to go to Guinea Conakry, that, and they start seeing also at that time Guinea Conakry being a major base where you have a lot of Pan-Africanist nationalists from Port, for Portuguese 
colonies, but also from Francophone colonies, from English colonies, also all living in Conakry, right? And that's when they start organizing, reorganizing their political party. And that's when also the idea about allowing women, because they were able to see the power of women in terms of mobilization, especially in the case of French, former French Guinea with undersecretary. You see, that's when they start allowing more and more women to join the party. And from there, now they start training themselves and organizing themselves for what later on will be the armed struggle. And the women will play a key role in that. Thank you very much for that. I really I love this uh, uh, history podcast. It's very interesting. I, I think we should be doing this every day. because <laughs> <laughs> No, honestly, our people need it because uh, we need to know uh, uh, we need to know about our history. This is this is our past. We need to dig it up from time to time and, re and review it. It is very important. Mm -hmm. All right. Now uh, we talk about the role of women in in the liberation struggle in Guinea-Bissau. It's not just because somebody wants to do them a favor or something like that. It's because they really were there. They really did the work that make it possible for for what eventually happened, the victory. Now. Uh, um, I want, I want to know, what really did they do? Help us to understand that. Okay, what, when it's first, you have to understand Guinea, French Guinea, the women play a key role in helping Pep Sekuture and his political party, the Party Africa, the Party Democratic Africa, in mobilizing from since 1948. And those Guinean women play a key role in what later on allowed Guinea to vote no in the French referendum that led to Guinea becoming independent. You see, and when Cabral and his followers asked for security purpose run from Bissau to Conakry, they saw the role women were playing, the Guinean women were playing in mobilizing and helping Secretary run this newly independent country. And at the same time also, as you have a lot of Bissau Guinean women who were living already in uh, French Guinea, some of them for education purpose, because they were not allowed to have access to access to education in Bissau or Portuguese Guinea, then some of the, some certain parents send their kids to French Guinea for them to have some kind of like education. I can name somebody like Francisca Pereira, who is still a predominant political figure in Guinea-Bissau. She joined the PIJC when she was in Guinea-Bissau, uh, when she was in Guinea-Conakry. And why she was in Guinea-Bissau? Because her parents sent her there to get education. But at the same time, you have some other uh, people from Portuguese colonies who were living there because they felt like as Guinea is independent, uh, fr former French Guinea is independent, that can be used as a mobilizing place in order to organize themselves to fight against the Portuguese colonization. You have people from Angola, you have from people from Mozambique, all that who were living there also. Meaning, Secretary and the French Guinea was playing, uh, Secretary and Guinea, the newly independent Guinea, was playing the same role as the one somebody like Kwame Kuruma and Ghana was playing on the English. Uh, English colonies site. You see, now then 
automatically, when Cabral start mobilizing, you start seeing some young Bissau Guineans moving toward Guinea-Bissau, uh, Guinea-Conakry, in order for them to be trained, right, for political purpose. For them to be trained for political purpose, and one of their number one trainer or teacher was Cabral himself. Because Cabral wanted to make sure the people he will send back to Guinea-Bissau for them to help mobilize the people of Guinea-Bissau to prepare them for the liberation war. They have to be people who understood why the liberation war, and they have to be able to uh, translate the message of the struggle for independence in a very meaningful way. What that mean? Be able to go talk to the people in a language that they can understand. What that mean? To not go in back in Guinea-Bissau and talk to people about independence. Because the word independence, it's a concept and people don't eat concepts and people don't see concept. Then for him, these mobilizers going back, they should be able to come to people and talk to them in a very understandable way. Meaning what? Ask people to think about what were their living conditions prior to the, uh, uh, the Portuguese to come in and what is their living conditions now after the Portuguese come in. And automatically what you will see, people now being forced to pay taxes, the daily food people used to be able to give to their families being taken away by the Portuguese through their forced labor but also through their rationing, forcing people to fit the Portuguese armies and all that make living conditions becoming worse and worse and worse daily. Then for Cabral, when the colonizers go, the way they have to talk to people is how difficult your life is today compared to a long time ago. Number two, what is the reason your life is difficult now compared to a long time ago? And what needs to be done in order for people to be able to get back to the kind of life, daily life they used to have and be able to fit their family in the past that they have lost. You see, after training these mobilizers, political mobilizers, he sent them in the battlefield. And these political mobilizers, when they went back to the battlefield, the, guess what? The first people who they were convinced were women. You see. The first people they were, because think about it, we're talking about African societies where women play a key role in feeding the family. You see, and think about it, before the colonization, yes, the whole, most of African societies been composed of farmers, but we were farming what we need to eat. You see, but with the arrival of the colonization system, that's when cash cropping come in place. And cash cropping, men was in charge of the cash cropping, while women, in most places, women continue to be in charge of the subsistence farming. You see, then women were the first one who felt, right, the danger of colonization as the food they used to produce to feed their family, they are losing it. How they are losing it? Cash crop is asking more and more land. And what that means, the land allocated to farm, uh, subsistence farming is shrinking, shrinking to the point where now it's becoming more and more difficult, not only to feed the family, but also it's becoming more, even more and more difficult to have time to look for 
what you can use to feed your family. And all that happened because colonial taxation system, because colonial forced labor, right? And colonial issues. You see, then automatically these women that they became also key important in the mobilizing system. And from there, what they're gonna do, they start going and talking to their husbands, right? And they became kind of like the protectors of these mobilizers sent by Cabral. And they became the one also who started talking to their husbands in the countryside to convince them that they should join the fight. That's how the whole process, for example, I can say it, somebody like Titina Silla, who was very well-known women, that's how she joined the war. You have somebody like, uh, how I said it, uh, Eva Gomez, right? That's how she was convinced to join the struggle. Now you have others also who will, women who will join the struggle because their husbands joined the struggle and were forced to get out of Bissau. The best case is Carmen Prera, who's very well known. Carmen Prera, who was the wife of uh, Umaru Jallo. Umaru Jallo was part of the first group uh, who joined the PIJC or who some social scientists said he participated in the creation of the PIJC, right? Uh, were forced after the Pinjikidi massacre in 1959, was forced to move to Guinea-Conakry uh, Guinea with Cabral and all those. When they moved, now what you're gonna see, the police, for colonial police will keep challenging Carmen Prera and, his, and her kids who Umaru Jalo left behind in Bissau to the point where Carmen was forced also to find a way to get out of Bissau to join the husband. How, what she's gonna do at the point of time, she will end it. And as she was heavily uh, controlled by the Portuguese police, she ended up saying like her husband was sick and she needed authorization to go to visit her husband. With the help of her father, who was a lawyer, she was able to get out from there. She was granted permission to go and she moved to Konak, uh, to Zigeshore, south of Senegal, in her way, trying to get back to Conakry. And when she got to uh, Zigeshore, south of Senegal, Cabral and some of the PIGC members asked her to stay there because now they want her, by staying in Zigeshore, she became a kind of like, a point of relay for many of these young Bissau Guineans who are trying to get out of Guinea-Bissau to go to Conakry and they most of them have to pass by through Zigenshore and from Zigenshore, they will continue. Then meaning you have some other women also as part of trying to join their husband or as part of trying to help their husbands and voluntarily ended up joining the national struggle, right? Because it became, and later on, they ended up being convinced of the reason to fight and they became major predominant. You have another case of a lady who I interviewed, her name is Fatuma Tejalo. Her son, she used to have only one son. She The son decided to join the mobilization and fight against the colonial system. And this lady, as her son was, she got only one son. She was very worried about the devenir of her son and regularly she tried to go to bring food to her son in these forest areas. And over time with the war, her son moving with all the, some of other guerrillas in different places and seeing her son becoming more and more difficult, right? She decided just like abandon everything 
and join her son wherever her son is. She go with the meaning of trying to take care of her son, meaning providing food to her son, but ended up being food provider for most of the fighters who are part of the her son's group. You see, that's kind of like how little by little. And at the end, what you will see, uh, Carmen, right? And uh, uh, Francisca Pereira and others such as Titina Silla will be sent to the Soviet Union for military training and nursing training. You see, and they went there, learned how to use uh, weapons, how to do all this kind of stuff. And after that, they came back. Yes, most of them will continue to work as nurse, right, in these battlefields, but many of them also were able to carry on guns and fight against the Portuguese, uh, the Portuguese army and the Portuguese poli police. Then they became also weapon transporters, as you will see uh, in the early struggle, right? Because uh, Portuguese police was a little bit kind of like very, I'm not gonna say lazy, inclined to let women passing by with their big baskets, right? And the Guinea-Bissau nationalists will use these women to transport, transport weapons from Guinea-Conakry to Guinea-Bissau, right? And uh, for example, people know the beginning of the war happened when a kind of like incident happened. The incident, most of the time people call it the, uh, the Sana, the uh, Bekai Sana incident in which they said the Malansana incident. What happened was you have a group of Bissau Guinean women carrying these large baskets, but these baskets are full of guns that they are trying to pass through this Portuguese military post and police post. But what happened in one of the incidents, like a group of women working and uh, Malansana, who was a Balanta male accompanying them in his Balanta dress, trying to be kind of like the escort type. And one of the women fell down in front of some of the Portuguese police officers and the basket was open and the Portuguese were able to see the guns and all that and Malin make the first shot, you know? And some for some socialist, social scientists, that shot was part of the lynching point of the real struggle. Because now think about it, what I said, 1959, Cabral and his followers know they're going to have an armed struggle, but from 1959 all the way to 1961, 62, the goal was to train the people and make the masses accept and adhere to the idea of the uh, armed struggle. You see, and the women play a key role in that period of time in preparing the war, mobilizing people, transporting weapons. And when the war started, uh, some of them were already uh, trained as nurses. They were in the battlefield to kind of like take care of the wounded fighters. But at the same time, many of them became key fighters in these struggles. You know, I know some of them, uh, Joacinta da Costa, who participated in the war and a part of him, her participating in the war, she lost one of her, uh, she lost her right eye because of this gunshot, through a gunshot. And you have several other examples in which women, Nanjati, who was like what they call a sapadura, meaning these marine officers, 
was able to swim for very long distance, settle mines on Portuguese uh, boats to get them explored and all this kind of stuff. Meaning, really women participate in every single aspect of the war, especially from this period, a starting point, going all the way to 1965, when for some political reason, they start to be asked to stay behind, but it's not gonna last long because many of them will refuse to stay behind and continue fighting. The most well-known in that case is Tichina Sila, right? But later on by the 1970s, the PAIJC leadership will recall all the women in the fight because they wanted to end the war. The uh, leadership wanted to end the war very quickly. You see, that's kind of like all what happened and all that. Yes, they were in every, they, these women were in every single aspect of the struggle. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Liu. Uh, this is very important. These stories are very, very important. And we need to uh, let the world know what has, what has been going on. Um, because in, in most cases, you will look at uh, what has been happening in Africa that see if the people never resisted. Even if we were to take up the pages of history on slavery, we will see, understand that there will be fight, there will be resistance. It wasn't like uh, the people were just there, hey, put a chain on my hand and take me to, to slavery. It was, it was never like that. It's just that we are waiting for other people to tell the story and it's going to hurt us for a very, very long time. Uh, now, uh, you as a, as a researcher, as a professor in this, uh, in this particular field, you have talked to some of these women who have uh, been direct uh, fighter. Now, you tell me personally, when you talk to them, what do you feel? Like they tell you their own story. What do you feel? Uh, share that with me. First, what do you feel is like you are proud. And like you said, even myself, when I start researching on Guinea-Bissau, the first goal was to go talk, discuss, and learn more about Amical Cabral and the national liberation struggle. You see, because as young, a young from Senegal, we always heard about Cabral and the nationalist struggle in Guinea-Bissau. You see, now what made me even became interested in talking to these women were something happened when I was in Guinea-Bissau in 2008 during the summer of 2008, as I was in the PIJC headquarters. And at the time, PIJC was the ruling party and they were getting ready for their parliamentary elections, right? I was in a major uh, kind of like seminar room, a large seminar room full of people. And suddenly a lady entered the room. And as soon this like old lady, who seemed to be very charismatic, entered the room. Everybody stand up and people kind of like lined up to shake her hand one by one. As new also, and I never, I don't know who is she. I was with one, uh, Julia Omane, who was at that time my kind of like research assistant and, uh, uh, and Ramalo Mbalo, uh, Ramalo, Kamara, wait. Ramalo Sisoko, right? Ramalo Sisoko, who was one of these fighters during the National Liberation War. And as they stand, I stand with them and we all shake the hand of the lady. And when I come, Ramalo uh, Sisoko said to me, this is Tia Carmen. I say hi to her, came and I was puzzled. 
how come this room where you have ministers and even like the prime minister at that time, uh, or like the, the leader of the PAIGSA at that time, uh, Carlos Gomez Jr. was there. Everybody stand up and shake this lady's hand. I keep asking, who is this lady? And they said, Tia Carmen. And after that, I say, who is she? They said, she was one of the toughest fighters during the National Liberation War. And now think about it. I have been conducting a lot of readings for over a period of two years before I go to Bissau to have a better understanding of the National Liberation War. And what I realized in most of the scholarship work, when people talk about these women, they talk about them in a very indirect way. And that's what triggered my kind of like curiosity. And I keep asking to the people who I work with, they say, you know what? You have so many women here who are still alive who participated in this fight. And that's when I start saying like, you know what? I need to meet these women. And I was lucky enough through the PAGSA leadership to be introduced to somebody like Bakar Gassama, who was one of the earliest people Cabral was able to convince to join the fight in 1954. I was able to meet Carmen Pereira. Now think about it when we talk about Carmen, maybe the name means nothing to you, but think about it. She is the first African woman acting president right in 1984 in Guinea-Bissau, meaning we have a tendency to talk as Sirley Johnson of Liberia to be the first African women president, right? We now think about it. I'm talking about Carmen Pereira who was in 1984, the first acting president who was acting president of Guinea-Bissau. Yes, she was acting president for a very short period of time, but she was in the president uh, he was, she was the president, acting president of that time. You see, I was able to meet Carmen. I was able to meet uh, 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 Francisca Pereira, right? I was able to meet so many other women who participate in this struggle. Now, me meeting them at the beginning, it was difficult to have them get me uh, telling me why they were joining the war. Because at first they accepted to meet me because I was, they were asked by the PISSA headquarters or leadership to meet me, right? But as I regularly go there and them knowing also I'm from Senegal and what I'm doing, what I'm interested, over time we developed some kind of like camaraderie and a kind of like friendship. And throughout those camaraderies and friendship also, I realized coming and directly asking these questions about what role they play in the war and what, what they did. Most of the time, they will always go back to give you this kind of like, quote unquote, official narrative. And the official narrative lay always around this uh, macro history in which is like, oh, we decided to liberate our country and we take the guns to fight the colonial system and so and so. Because the war has always been portrayed like that. Most of the time, these national liberation wars were portrayed like that. It's kind of like defining them through this nationalist independence ideology or defining them through this quote unquote Marxist paradigm ideology or defining them through this having 
a nationalist charismatic leader who came and was able to convince everybody to join the fight. But over time, moving away from these mega narratives and me just like discussing the, with them about what was their life or what life looked like in Giza Bissau during these colonial years, right? And the leading to the national liberation struggle. That's when you start seeing them talking about how difficult life became with the colonial system, how they were forced now to spend more time in colonial farms or how they were expend, forced to expend more time in this cash crop farmings because they needed to, in order to pay colonial tax and so and so, how violent the colonial officers were. Meaning it go back, their narrative go back to them women joining the fight more likely based on uh, how their daily activities, daily life were becoming so and so difficult, how feeding their families were becoming more and more difficult. And that's how it goes. And as I keep going there every year, every year, and always maintaining the contacts, it come to a point where they will always tell me these stories about when they were fighting and how happened. And also at the end, what you will see, they talk also about the struggle they have to face, right? Uh, when having to deal with their Bissau Guinean male fighters too. You see, that's why some social scientists, somebody like uh, Stephanie Urden arguing the women of Guinea Bissau during this national liberation war, they were fighting against two colon uh, colon colonial system, meaning the colonial system from the Portuguese colonization, but also this old African male ideology in, all, in, in which women should be staying behind, right? Or women should be a second class player, right? In the political sphere and so and so. You see, they have to deal with all that. And they said, one of the person who really convinced them and who understood the struggle women were fighting at that time was Amical Cabral. Because Cabral himself, he used to advocate fighting against the Portuguese colonization was the small fight. The big fight is fighting against these traditional socio-cultural practices that kept women as second class. You see, that's why for Cabral, it was extremely important to make sure, right, through the period of time they're fighting against the colonial system, they have also to fight against all these socio-traditional uh, beliefs that make a woman a second-class citizen. They have to fight to grant women the same political rights, but also the same socio-cultural rights as any other man, right, uh, during those period of time. And sadly, what's gonna happen is Cabral was assassinated before the end of the war. He was assassinated on January 20, 1973. And Guinea-Bissau became completely independent uh, on September 10, 1974. Talking to these women, female fighters, what they said, the way they caricature all that is like, uh, during Cabral promised them after the war, men and women will share the pie. But what happened with the passing of Cabral after the war, women, men did not share the pie with the women. They just gave a slice of the pie to the women. 
You see, meaning, sadly, everything go back to how it used to be in terms of social and cultural interaction uh, between men and women. And the consequences are women being pushed back also to becoming kind of like second class citizens in which they are more have to play more a role of uh, how you said uh, a figure a figurative role instead of the role that Cabral envisioned for them at the uh, in the new independent Guinea-Bissau Republic of Guinea-Bissau they were planning to build. That's kind of like what you see happen there and how it goes. It looked like uh, the story uh, Angela Davis was saying relating to. Um, uh, the fight by the African American to have a more just society, you know, that when it come up, it's usually about the argument that only the male were there fighting you know? on. But nobody ever talked that, uh, uh, they, well, at least very few say that the women have also been there, not just supporting, but have been there fighting, just like the men were fighting, you know. It, just, it, it doesn't mean because you are a man, you just have to say only the men fight. No, everybody fought because, like you said, the women feel the pain too. It becomes natural that they are also in the front fighting. And if they have been in the front fighting, it is right that their story also need to be told. Don't like the men's story, are being told because no one is more, because there is no small death, there is no bigger death. Death is dead. The women that die in war are just are men that die in war. So no one should be giving uh, a better coffee. No one should be giving a better barrier. All of us died in war if we if we happen like that. So at the end of the day, we should tell all the story. So I really find it very interesting, this project of yours, this narration of yours. Uh, and now I want to put the story to you like this. For a historian, a researcher like you, when do you think this telling this story is important for our children, not for us now, but for our children that are coming to life 2021, because they are going to have a different kind of future. Why should we tell them this story? We should tell the story because, like you said, in every single African struggle, African women play a key role in this struggle. You see, if you look for them in the in South Africa, in the case of South Africa, since the creation of the INC, African National Congress, right? Uh, very few years later on, you have South African women who joined the fight and they fought in that struggle from that time all the way to the end. If you look at the case in Zimbabwe, right? A struggle for independence, right? Women participated in this struggle from the beginning to the end. They took guns, weapons, and fought. You see, you look the women in Eritrea, in many, many, in Algeria, in every single struggle you see on the African soil. Armed struggle or not armed struggle, women play a key role in those struggles. Now, we should talk about this because it's kind of like, we, number one, we should not let others write our history. Or even if we can let others write our history, we should also, part we should also participate in writing our own history. Also, this is a way for us to know that 
African societies, in African in many African societies, women have always been playing key prominent, prominent roles, right? In which, in the political aspect, but also in the economic aspect, in the social aspect. You see, we have some African societies in which women were the major policy makers. Then we have to bring back all those views and those history alive in order to show half of the Africans who are women, they have their part to play, but also at the same time also make uh, African men realize they can do nothing without women and they should allow African women to be full participant in the struggle, not in a figurative way. You see, and we, if we don't bring them out, nobody will know about it, right? And it's gonna be a loss for our own societies, for our own communities. You see, that's why it's extremely important to show that aspect. Now, yes, in the academia world, people, a lot of people talk about, when people talk about war, it's very gender-oriented, gender but we have to rewrite all those histories and show the role these female fighters play in these struggles. That's why it's extremely important for us to keep talking about that. That's why it's extremely important by us keeping talking about that. It allowed also young African women to know they should not have any limit in terms of what they can do, right? And what role they can play. That's All right. Uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Aliu. Now, to that, I'm going to uh, ask the question like this: In why do you think men are the one that are most uh, are more prominent in in history, in African history, in this case, even though in the construction of the society, like you already uh, pointed out, it is both is co-created both by men and women. Why should the part of the women not be written just the way the men are being written? Because if we go back to older African history now, we see that men, women have been, have been they have played a role, their story has to be documented. The first mask that is used in Benin, uh, that is usually often used to represent African art, is the face of a woman, the mother of uh, Anoba. If we enter into the uh, ancient Egyptian history, we see that the, we have built a uh, uh, refiguration of men and also of women. But why is it that today we are afraid to show women in that they are really holding guns and really shooting, not that they are just there preparing pizza? Now, the whole thing is like it's a matter of controlling. Because think about it accepting women in many African societies or in many societies in general, people compete, compete to control wealth, compete to control power, right? Then this whole notion about women to be second-class citizen, meaning you are already eliminating half of the competitors. Right? And this go back to ancient history. Right? When people were trying to leave, right? And finding food, right? Organizing societies, right? The, some people always have a tendency to try to control other ones. And the men 
in many societies and especially in centralized societies. And when we say centralized societies, we're talking about societies in which uh, food scarcity or land scarcity is part of it, right? Then automatically it became important. Whoever can control food or land or water became the most powerful person, right? And automatically think about it, what's gonna happen? The one who control have a tendency to be man and automatically man as way to control half of the people it's all automatically kind of like saying, because you are women, you could not do this, right? And after that, now building all this social hierarchy, meaning all these caste systems, right? Because you are this, you can't do this. Because you are this, you can't do this. And all that is kind of like allowing a little tiny group of people to be at the top. And those ones just became the one who are allowed to run everything because somehow, right? For at first, the notion of trying to control people that later on they, they, they translate into social class, right? Then automatically anybody who's not part of that social class is eliminated. Any, every, anybody who's not a man is automatically eliminated. And then the power is in the hand of a little tiny groups. Now, you have some African societies in which women used to be the one playing the most important roles, right? And even in those societies, the change will happen with the colonization. Because when Europeans come with their colonist mind, mindset, coming from Europe, they were a heavily male-oriented society. Then when they come, even in places where women were the political leaders, women were the one making political decisions, they refused, these Europeans refused to have women as interlocutors. They look for men and male as interlocutors. It mean in even African societies where women used to have some kind of like political power and social power or economic power through the colonization system, they ended up losing those powers. And now think about it. All African countries at the exception of Ethiopia were colonized by Europeans. And Europeans come and with their whole new invented traditions, set up a whole new bunch of rules and laws in which man is in charge of the power. You see, man is in charge of the power. And automatically that's what happened. That's what, what lead to the generalization of African men being always been in charge of the power in every single African country. Now, sadly, Western society, they believe, oh yeah, in Africa, men is exploiting women, da, 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 da. That's part of African traditional beliefs, da, 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 da. But they refuse to recognize it come from Europe because it was not something that was general in Africa, that was generalized in Africa. You used to have, yes, some African societies that are heavily male-oriented, Right, but you used to have some African societies in which women were the one ma making the decisions and participating in the decision making. You see, but the Europeans coming in, they are the one who unified the playing field on Africa and allowed African men everywhere in their colonies to become the one deci uh, the deciding factor, the one making the decisions. That's kind of like what you see happen there. Okay, now I'm just thinking, you know, and what I'm thinking is this one. Uh, because uh, in every society, if there were to be war, the women and the children, it's just natural, they suffer more. 
Because of course, the men are going to fight the die. The women, <laughs> in most of the cases, they remain, so they suffer. They become the victim in most of the cases. So now I'm thinking, what if women were to be in charge of key position in some society in Africa? I wanted to make comparison for me because in many, in many cases in Africa today, uh, uh, we have men in, in charge. I would say the whole system is fucked up. Fortunately, Africa system is fucked up. Of course, maybe not all the uh, not in all the cases is the fault of the person that is there. Maybe the person that is there is somehow be remoted. Hey, maybe it's also because he's not capable of doing it. But at the end of the day, we see the result. The result is that the system is not working in most of the cases. <laughs> okay. Now, if we were to have women in those positions, I'm just thinking, or I'm just thinking. Since the women are the ones that suffer more, is it possible that maybe we can have a better society? We can have a better government? We can have less corruption? I'm not saying that women cannot be corrupted. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying reasoning from the, I don't know, can we call it biology? I don't know. From the, from the fact that women are sort of the builder of the society, they, if you spoil it, you are going to be the one to suffer this more. Help me with this, please. Okay, what I can say about that, I don't know how or what we can do to come to a point in Africa where women are in charge of these African countries. But what I can say is, if we look today, just for the COVID case, right? The countries that are run by women are doing better than countries that are run by men, right? And in terms of countries run by women today, in terms of well-being, when they were assessed, people seem to be happier than many countries, than the countries that are run by men. And especially, I'm talking about, look, the case of most of these Scandinavian countries that are run by women. Look country like uh, New Zealand, how they doing? You see what I'm saying, right? <laughs> now, maybe like you said, yes, we can say since African countries became independent to now, maybe we have less than five African countries in which the head of the state is a woman, right? And so far, Africa seems to not be going in the right direction. Right? Now, like you said, maybe it might be a good idea to find a way to try to make a shift, right? To have African women in charge. But do you think African men and African male leaders or African Politicians in which most of them are men, do you think they're gonna allow <laughs> that kind of like shift to happen? Especially knowing that the way people do politics in Africa up to now, right? Do you think it's gonna happen? Or it might take time to happen. But yes, so far we can say it without uh, any doubt all most of the african presidents and leaders have failed africans 
and most of them so far have been men. What might be the solution? How uh, can we say if we have African leaders being women might be better? That's a possibility. That's a possibility, but how are we gonna get there? <laughs> That's where the big question will be. You see. All right, maybe we'll leave that to the audience to, to answer. But I have another question for you. Uh, the question is, of course, it's gonna be about representation and uh, more participation. If we cannot get, uh, of course, I don't say, oh, all the men should vacate and give the power to women, but if we can get more participation, of course, that was, it, it, my reflection was, Maybe we can have a change sometime. We might let's see the result, no? Because we don't we don't know what we don't know, no? Until we see it, we don't know what it is. Uh, okay, uh, having said that, um, from the point of view of leadership, what is even the explanation that there is a difference between a man leadership and a woman leadership? I can't even understand that. Can you help us? Ah. Uh... I can't talk about that as expert, but what I believe, maybe women with the whole notion of motherhood, right? Uh, they might be more interested or they seem to be more interested in taking care of the society as guardian of the society. That's something, uh, but based on the example, again, I gave you, if you look, the countries in which women are in charge of the states are the head of the states. In terms of well-being and happiness, they seem to have a better index than countries in which men are the head of the states. Now, the sensitivity of motherhood and the role motherhood being more close, right, to the family, to the society, the one, the guardian of the family, the guardian of the tradition, who is always interested in the well-being of the other ones before they even care about themselves. You see, all those facts might make, might be the reason why they are more interested in taking care of a society, the society as a whole, and not focusing on just like political aspect and economic aspect, you see, or what they can get out of it. All right, uh, uh, Dr. Aliu, I have a question for you. Uh, if uh -huh. I, before I ask the question, I'm going to um, make a, a, a simple analogy uh, like this. Uh -huh. You see, in my tradition, uh, mm -hmm. if I, there is the belief of many people uh, there, I'm from Urumi, I'm from Esan, I'm talking of Esan tradition, but of course, the one that I know, Mm -hmm. um, that there is a possibility that when a man dies, he can, if a, if a, if a, a man is having a bad spirit, he can come to hurt the children, you know, the family. Uh, in the midst of all this confusion, there is also the idea that there are, there are both men and uh, women's spirits. Mm -hmm. Now, it is believed that the women's spirit are more gentler than the male spirit, meaning the male spirit are more violent sometimes. So <laughs> what I'm trying to drag at here, uh -huh. is it possible that we should actually be giving more role? Because it, 
Now you talk about the society because they are the guardian of the society for this reason that they might be more, they might, they might do a better job because we need people to do a better job in the position there. Now, I'm still thinking that even from the point of view, looking at it from the spiritual point of view, it is even believed that the, the female spirit are better than the male spirit. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is anything we can actually take from the, Okay, now, let's look at it from cultural point of view. Uh -huh. from, culturally speaking, is there anything that explains that women have more women can do better job than men in terms of leadership i want to limit it to that place before i get it confusing but think about this even in ancient time who take care of the kids the babies it's women in ancient time when human beings were hunter and gatherers right women the cohort of women, they were the ones who were always taking care of the little babies and kids and all that with them. Men as hunters and gatherers used to walk alone as a cohort of men, right? Without babies or young teenagers or anything like that. Meaning this motherhood is something that is inner. It is the, it's the essence of women. Think about it. You have a proverb saying, you educate a woman, you educate a whole family, or you educate a whole society. You educate a man, you have educated just one man. I mean, you, you see, the selfishness, if I can call it like that, man is, everything is like, for him, what he can be, what he can get, what he can control. When women, right, by Athens, has been the one who take care of the younger ones, meaning the weak ones, the, the weak ones, right? The ones who can't protect themselves. She has always been the one who educate, right? The one, she has always been the one who discipline. She has been the one who nature, nature, a little boy, little girl, you got hurt, you run to your mom, go run back to your mom. And whatever she was doing, she will drop it and take care of you. She heard you crying, she's the one who's gonna come out. You see what I'm saying? All that are part of what is a woman. You see, it's just like male dominance oriented societies is more selfish. Now, look about all, all our African politician leaders. Since Africa became independent to now, most of the, our leaders have been men. How many of them really work for their own African countries? How many of them is still African and African wealth? How many of them after that, with their families and after all that, run away and let these African societies and people suffer? So far, yes, we can say we did not have a women. Okay, beside the case of Liberia, right? We did not have a large number of African female 
as a head of a state for us to be able to compare or see what they what would happen to their countries, right? But that's why I borrowed this Scandinavian female head of state's case or the case of uh, New Zealand. You see, you see at least them, their countries seem to be more in the right direction. Now, when I say right direction, I'm talking about in terms of well-being and happiness. I'm not talking about economic development because what economic development mean if people are not seeing it? What economic development mean if people are not eating? You see what I'm saying? What economic development mean if people are not in peace? You see what I'm saying, right? That's kind of like, that's where the issue is. That's where the issue is. Then it's kind of like we need a heavy, profound change within these African societies or these African political societies in order to allow African women to play key role. Now you're gonna say, yes, you have some state, they talk about parity, wherever you have a man, you have a women and so and so. But that that mean having the numbers mean really allowing African women to play the major role they should play and they could play in our African societies. You see numbers, it's good, but can we translate the numbers into reality? Yes, you're gonna say a place like Rwanda or a place like Senegal where they talk about political parodies and all this kind of stuff. But is it really translated in what it should really mean and how it really should be? You see, and how are we gonna make that happen? If our African leaders are all interested in maintaining themselves in power, someone who's interested in maintain, maintaining himself in power, I don't think that person will be ready to expand the political sphere to allow some other groups that has always been marginalized to get in. You see how it's gonna happen. And if you look our African politicians, when always they talk, they're not talking about gender equality, they're always talking about how the one who is in place should be removed for them to come in place. That's why every time you see how people manipulate the constitutions, every president who can manipulate the constitution in order to allow himself to have one extra mandate, if they do not change the whole constitutions to be able to stay in power uh, for longer. <laughs> you see, power sharing, it's a major problem and it's a, a male problem, I'm gonna say. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Is the main problem? Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, you see, I, I I want to thank you for for that for the for the explanation to to this uh, uh, last few questions related to women. Of course, it, it is to show that it's not that we are just here trying to please the women for for nothing because they really deserve they really deserve it. We are talking about what they have done. You know, you are not mentioning you are not transforming somebody who is who haven't done anything to. To, to be married to to marry something you know because they, they did it actually all right now how can we if get you allow me just to say something yes, there please please it's not like to please african women they deserve it in every single struggle that happened on the african soil african women responded present it go back to even in pre colonial africa 
if you look this in pre-colonial Africa, you have examples of women fighting in Ivory Coast by 1945, when their husbands were put in jail. The same thing happened in Ghana by 1929, uh, happened in Nigeria with the Igbo women. The same thing happened in Kenya with the Kikuyu women during the Mau Mau fight. But even before the Mau Mau fight, going back to 1905, the same thing happened in uh, Algeria. The same thing happened in Senegal. The same thing happened in South Africa. The same thing happened in uh, Zimbabwe. In every single African country, if you dig in their history, you will see women have been participating in the struggle since the beginning, way before colonization, going back to pre-colonial Africa, right? Going back to ancient Africa, right? Then this is not a matter of pleasing them. It's a matter of accepting to recognize the role of these African women, the role these African women play in our societies and allow them to get back and be able to play that same role they, has been, they have been playing in ancient Africa, through, uh, uh, in, in, in ancient time in Africa to today. Thank you so much for that. In fact, that is a question. How do we get more women involved in contemporary African history? Because we need them to be there. Of course, the number, like you said, okay, it's true that we talk of the percentage, how many women are there yet, but we mean, Actually, I'm saying, how can we get them to be real participants in that you don't just make the decision because you don't have any other choice. They need to make the decision like this is what I want to say. How can we get them to be in that position? It's kind of like African women are there who participated are there. What we can say, like what we should do is like as scholars, historians, political scientists, everybody in every field of a scholarship for people to be more interested in the role these African women played and bring it out. You see, and at the same time, avoid to get trapped in these Western paradigms where everything has to be explained through a Western ideology or a Western way of thinking. That's what we need to do. Get out of those boxes and talk and allow these African women and allow the unheard voices to be heard. That's what needs to be done. And it's gonna start with, yes, African intellectuals or African academia, scholarship and all that. To do that, to be interested in those ones, but also push over time our governments to invest, right? For scholars to be able to dig out these histories and, the, and showcase the role these African women played. It's like everybody has a role to play. As journalists, you yourself, as educator yourself, it's important also you keep inviting all the Africans who are writing or talking or investigating uh, in topics related to what these women have been doing. You see, for example, why not organize a whole debate about how 
uh, Sir Lloyd, President jo Johnson run Liberia and what she was able to do in Liberia in compare to the previous presidents of Liberia. Because whatever happened in the case of Liberia, at least she was able to allow a democratic transition to happen, right? Think about it, especially in West Africa, where you see how many West African presidents have been making changes in their constitutions to maintain themselves in power. And she did not do that. As should she finish her second mandate, she left. She did not try to manipulate. When, look what happened in Ivory Coast. Look what happened in Guinea. People talking about something like that might happen in Senegal, nobody know yet. You see what I'm saying? Look what is happening in, uh, in Mali, right? Look what is happening in, in Chad. You see, at least her, she was not interested. She showed at least she was not interested in power the way these West African leaders are so interested in power. She did what she promised to do, right? At least she respected the constitution. And when she finished her turn, she left peacefully and continued to work for her country. That's a very good example that like not only yeah, many African males should follow, African leaders should follow. And this is what we are talking about. And I, I'm sure somebody's listening because these people really, they are there. We can see them. We can, they're not, we're not like trying to uh, bring people from the sky. They didn't want to solve the problem. They're already there. We just need to give them the chance to do it, both men and women. All right, so I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Ali. You see, we spent a lot of time here uh, looking at issues that really concerns us. Now, uh, we are about the end of it, and I want you to tell us, uh, because we are looking at the role of women in Guinea-Bissau um, situation, but also in Africa in general. Uh, say, maybe somebody come to listen to this video and want to say, okay, so what lesson do I take home from here? So you, if you were to draw out a lesson, maybe two or three, from what you have learned from these women, because you have interviewed some of them, you have had a chance to talk to them. What would be your three most important lessons from their participation? First, I'm gonna say what Cabral said. You can't develop a country when you keep half of the country as second-class citizens. Women should be allowed to show and exploit their full power in order for us to be able to develop our continent. That's the first thing. And without knowing, every African man might be gender biased. And at the individual level, everybody has to do something to recognize uh, no one, no man is better than any woman and play it genuinely to allow women, right, to develop fully. The same chances, the same way we try to make sure our African boys go to school, right? That same way we force ourselves and allow our African uh, daughters to be able to go to school and exploit their full potential. You see, that's what I see. 
And this is not about doing something to please the women. That's allowing African women to get back to where they used to be prior to colonization. You see, we that's what we need to do. That's how and what would, will help us to develop our continent. That's kind of like what I learned through this, because these Bissau Guinean female fighters show me whatever a man can do, they can do it. Whatever a Bissau Guinean man was doing during those wars, they did it. But uh, man has to accept to allow them to play the full role. African women are so peaceful, so good, right? So knowledgeable, right? That like it's in our continent benefit to allow them to play fully their role. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you so much. This has been really a full lecture and I really benefited a lot from it. And I think our audience too have benefited a lot uh, from the conversation with Dr. Aliu. Um, yes, this is, the, this is the message and I hope all of you, you have gotten it. I don't have anything to add to it because you really did say it all. I just want to thank you. I thank you to all of you that have accompanied us to the end of this podcast. And it I really, been a... yeah. yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, say something. Thank you very much for having me and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead everyone for. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.